from Outset, I'm Benjamin Green, and this is Second Look. It's the show where we pause and take a second look at issues and things going on in politics and culture. Well, I'm starting off today's episode kind of strangely by telling you to read an article from Vox, (laughs) which is not a site uh, you will find me recommending very often. I have no particular beef with Vox other than that they so often publish inaccurate things and then have to issue corrections. Quite often, though, I find their perspective very insightful. They do definitely have a left-leaning slant, but it's a good site to check. And anyway, um, I read an article from Vox this week about the difference between Republicans and Democrats. And what that article tells me is that I am a Democrat who holds conservative and libertarian principles. (laughs) I believe in the Constitution. I believe in free markets. I believe in, you know, very right-wing things. But I view things politically from the perspective of how they affect people. Put another way, you might say that I agree with the the pathos of the Democrats and the logos of the Republicans and the ethos of neither one. <laughs> I, um, I see politics for how they affect individuals. It didn't always used to be this way. I used to think... I. I honestly couldn't tell you exactly when the shift started, and I didn't go back and listen to early episodes of this show, so it might even be true once I, after I had started doing Second Look. But I used to think that the best way to engage politically was just stick to the Constitution and nothing else. And while I do think that's still... I do still believe that's the best thing to go from a policy standpoint, I think there's perhaps no worse way to go from a political standpoint. People aren't won over by arguments and whining about a document from the 18th century. While I do wish more people had the deep respect for the Constitution than I have, it's simply not the case. And It's taken a long time for me to come to this point of view, but I no longer begrudge people who feel like that's not (laughs) the case. It no longer bothers me if people just don't claim to stand for the Constitution. What bothers me is when people are hypocrites and say they stand for the Constitution, but then don't back it up. But why why this shift, and why do I now um, like people-centric arguments rather than logical and, um, if you will, document-centric arguments? Well, there are a lot of things that have contributed to change me on this. For one thing, um, since coming to college, I've 
become more and more libertarian, and I go through uh, little waves where I'm more libertarian and little waves where I'm less libertarian. I've never been comfortable calling myself just a plain old flat-out libertarian, but but I am very sympathetic to um, libertarianism and the notion that um, the individual is the smallest minority on earth. And so we have to protect the rights of individuals. This is inherently more uh, person-specific than progressivism, than conservatism. It's the very nature of libertarianism to say, you and I are different, we value different things, and so we should be able to live our lives in a way that reflects the value we assign to things. Another thing that has moved me toward this end of favoring um, the the person-centric pathos is actually my faith. And you might be wondering why. Well, my faith teaches that there is a God who set down universal laws for how um, humans are to deal with each other, how humans are to build a relationship with him. And my God set down these laws. And yet, even though he has these blanket universal rules, the Bible teaches that he cares about each individual person separately from those rules. It's kind of a weird way to put it, but um, there's a passage in Matthew 6, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching and um, says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Your Father in heaven feeds the sparrows. And are you not worth more to him than the sparrows are. And what that passage says to me, first of all, is that I shouldn't worry about things, but since this isn't a spiritual topic podcast, we'll go political with it for a second, that that God cares about the needs of individuals. So my my faith and my greater exposure to libertarianism are two things that have pushed me in this direction. Now, to be clear, I do believe that every single person needs to care about the rights of individuals. However, I don't think it's necessary for every single person to forsake, if you will, the the document-based <laughs> approach. And I was just doing air quotes there, but you... you can't see those. Huh. The document-based approach to politics, where we just stick to the Constitution. For sure, I think we need, well, first of all, just a general diversity of thought, but specifically, I think we need people to um, whose first thought is the Constitution when when it comes to discussing politics. But if you've ever read the book um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's by Dale Carnegie. He wrote it 
probably in the 30s. Um, it's a really powerful book, and it has <laughs> influenced a lot of people um, over the years, and there are all these Dale Carnegie courses and things. But one of the things that Dale Carnegie emphasizes in this book, there are two that I think really speak to this. Number one is that people like to feel important, and number two is that you really need to learn to see things from the other person's point of view. And I think if politicians would really internalize these two things, it would be huge and go a long way to solving some of the problems we have with civil discourse. If Republican politicians who are so enamored with the Constitution, like, say, Rand Paul, who says things like, I want a government so small I can barely see it, and who's always bringing up the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, if someone like that um, were to realize or really just internalize that people want to feel important, he might see that there are some voters who live on welfare or food stamps who are there maybe through no fault of their own maybe through negligence that's irrelevant for the time but but they don't feel important they feel like Rand Paul's out to get them because he's touting this I want a government so small I can see it now again don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying we shouldn't want smaller government. I'm 100% for smaller government. In fact, I agree with Rand Paul specifically on the vision of the his vision of the role of the federal government. But I think his messaging on this is weak and it suffers from not being person-centric but being idea-centric. So why why is this relevant? Why have I brought this up today? Well, I was going to make my podcast today about whining, as in W-H-I-N-I-N-G. And I think this fits in well, because I think to a lot of people who aren't necessarily as involved in the political world as I am, or as you, dear listener of this political podcast, are, um, I, I think that people who aren't in the politics bubble and don't live there every day of every week don't... Uh, really feel cared for by people who have this idea-centric approach. And I think this is why Republicans lose elections. It's a combination of two things. What I was originally going to talk about today, whining, and um, then also this lack of person-centric pathos. Um. If you look at the last few national elections, our last Republican president is George W. Bush. Love him or hate him, he campaigned on compassionate conservatism. And he made this argument that um, a bigger government was okay, a more 
interventionist government was okay because it was out of compassion. And if we cared for people in this country, we would intervene in the economy. And if we cared for people overseas, we would intervene in their political affairs. Love that view or hate that view that in a nutshell, um, <laughs> a very, very, very overbroad nutshell is can summarize George W. Bush's presidency. And if we look at the end of his presidency, when he started to get less popular, it's when it felt like he didn't care for people. There was Hurricane Katrina, and a lot of people who walked away from Hurricane Katrina feeling like President George W. Bush and the Republican Party doesn't care about me. Whether that's right or wrong, it's the fact of the matter. That's what people felt like. When he chose to bail out the big banks... At the expense of us, a lot of people felt like, well, George W. Bush and the Republican Party don't care about me. And then we get John McCain running for office, who's not making an argument about how he's better at caring for people than Barack Obama is. Barack Obama's this candidate of hope and change, and we're going to transform America, and uh, we're going to heal race relations, and we're going to have new prospects. Well, it's no wonder that people who are disengaged from the political bubble gravitated toward Barack Obama. He was speaking to them and not to policy. If we look again in 2012 at Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney was trying to run a campaign as an indictment on Obama. That's what worked in the 2010 and 2014 midterms that people just ran against President Obama and his records and Republicans had huge, uh, huge victories in those races. But, but in national elections, it doesn't seem to work that way. Well, that's because people who are outside of the political bubble don't tend to vote in midterms. Uh, you know, of the people, the, the minority of people who choose to vote in this country, most of them only vote in presidential elections. Well, I, I haven't looked up the exact statistics, so I shouldn't say most, but a significant number of voters only vote in presidential elections. So Mitt Romney tried to run his campaign as an indictment of Obama's record, but instead he came off as tone-deaf and aloof, talking about his wife's two Cadillacs and making a $10,000 bet as a joke, but a $10,000 bet to Rick Santorum, and um, talking about binders full of women. I understand that all of those remarks and all of those things were twisted out of proportion by the media. But rather than complain about that, let's just say, I mean, that's what happened. And people didn't feel like Mitt Romney cared about them. People thought Mitt Romney was whiny. This is my number one problem with Rand Paul. I am a huge Rand Paul fan. I agree with him on almost everything. And I've supported his campaign from day one. I am sick and tired of the way he comes off as whiny. And there was a huge example of this this past week when he was excluded from the debate. Now, 
A lot of people are taking sides on this one. I I think Rand Paul belonged in the debate. Based on polling, he was ahead of John Kasich. John Kasich made it into the debate. He did not. I tend to believe conspiracies when they're about the media. Um, I, I don't have much trust for the media, whether conservative media or liberal media or what. I just don't have much trust for Media Incorporated. And I do lend some credence to the fact that historically the media has been very against the Paul family, and that might have had some bearing on Rand's exclusion from the debate. However, that said, upon exclusion from the debate, Rand started whining. (laughs) And it ended up being a net positive for his campaign. He got more attention from the media than he'd gotten in a long time. But nobody likes someone who whines. I saw people on Twitter who um, aren't Rand Paul fans but are sympathetic to some of what he stands for, some of aspects of his candidacy, who were just outright like, Seriously, this guy is being so immature. Meanwhile, I saw Rand fans like myself who were um, just defending him at every turn, which is funny because we really shouldn't do that. That's something that all libertarian-leaning people should not be so quick to defend politicians. But anyway, it turned a whole lot of people off from potentially supporting Rand Paul, and I don't think it helped anybody. I do think Rand had the right to express his discontentment with being with being excluded from the debate, and I think he definitely made the right choice to go do something else, and he held his little Rand rally periscope town hall thing. Um... I think that was the right choice, but he took it too far. He went around on interviews every day um, claiming they deserved to be in the debate and all this stuff. And I don't think that was the right way to handle it. And I think that uh, worries me a little bit when it comes to the prospect of Rand being the nominee. I want Rand Paul to be the Republican nominee for president. I know it's a long shot, but I do believe it's possible. And I want it to happen because there's no other person I want in that office picking our Supreme Court justices. There's no other person I want in that office um, vetoing or signing legislation coming from Congress. I think Rand would by far be the best person for the job of president. But from a political, not a policy standpoint, I wonder if nominating Rand is a good idea because I don't believe this country will elect another whiny politician. This brings us to the weird paradox, though, and that is Donald J. 
Trump. Trump is whiny. Whiny as all get out. Especially as relates personal attacks. He'll yell at other people and call them horrible names all day long. And then the moment anyone says anything even remotely critical of him, he whines about it or personally insults them. I I don't know if he has staying power. Should Trump be the nominee... I don't really see how he can win the general election, being this whiny candidate. That said, I don't really see how Trump has been in the race for six months now and has been leading the polls almost the whole time. I I don't get it. I don't get his appeal to begin with. So I'm not about to declare Trump can't win the general election, but he he would break, I guess, I guess the point of me bringing up Trump is to say that if he does win the general election, if Donald J. Trump is our next president, all of my theories today on why Republicans lose are worthless. But we'll just assume for the moment that Trump is not going to be the nominee. And we'll say that Rand or Cruz or Rubio or Bush or Kasich or somebody is Christie is the nominee. I don't think all of those people have a chance, but hey. Here's my advice to the Republican nominee. You have to work hard harder than the Democrats have to work to convince non-politically inclined people that you care about them. If you do not do this, you will lose the election. It's going to be hard for you to do this in our media climate because the media is very quick to portray Republicans as out of touch um, whether intentionally or not, I think it's largely intentional. But anyway, you are going to have a hard time convincing people you care about them. So from day one, from your speech on the convention floor as the nominee for President of the United States, you need to be giving speeches not that attack Obama, not that attack Hillary Clinton, you need to convince voters that Hillary Clinton, or Bernie Sanders, I shouldn't assume, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, they don't care about you as much as I and my running mate care about you. I think this is something that hasn't been done in my time watching politics I think this would work wonders for the GOP. And I think it would go a long way to accomplishing a lot of things the GOP is trying and failing to do. Reaching out to minorities, reaching out to women, and reaching people who don't vote. I think that if we whine about the last eight years of Obama's presidency, if we whine about 
what the Democrats will do if they get into power again, then it's useless. There's no point in us um, even having the election. We might as well just write it off as a Democratic victory, whether it's Hillary or Bernie. Sorry, Martin O'Malley, but I really don't think you stand a chance. I'm very impressed with how long you've stayed in the race this far, but, I mean, let's be real. In fact, I think this explains this difference between um, person-centric and idea-centric explains a lot of Barack Obama's power over Hillary in 2008 and Bernie's gains on her in 2016. Hillary is running a very um, idea, idealistic candidacy. First woman president. First woman president, by the way, did I mention I'm a woman and I could be the president? Uh, Obama and Sanders um, are running campaigns about, like, the deck is stacked against you, especially Sanders. The, our economy is rigged for the billionaires, and um, I'm there to stand up for you. I've been standing up for you for 30 years, and I think that as this election plays out, the Sanders camp is going to not go full negative, but they're going to continue to paint Hillary as a, a candidate of... Um, self-centeredness. She doesn't care about you. She cares about herself. She wants power. She wants to be in charge. And I think that Bernie stands a good chance at being the Democratic nominee. I know a lot of people have laughed off his chances from day one. And in fact, on day one, I was laughing off his chances. But um, as I watch uh, the people around me, I live in a college town, so there's some sampling bias here, but there are Bernie stickers everywhere. I probably see 20 Bernie standers for every one Hillary. St- <laughs> I just realized what I said. I probably see 20 Bernie stickers for every one Hillary sticker that I see. So I think Bernie's got a lot better shot at this than a lot of the pundits seem to believe. And I think it's because he doesn't whine. He doesn't just sit there and complain about what he sees as the problem of the billionaires rigging the game. He promises action. So I think what the the overall message of this podcast boils down to is this. Don't forget about people. People will elect you. (laughs) You don't get elected by the Constitution. You have to make arguments that people will like. Since I don't think many presidential candidates will listen to today's episode, I want to speak directly to you, the listener. You are... Maybe you have a little platform, maybe you write, maybe you have a podcast, but more likely than not, um, your primary area of influence is in your group of friends, your coworkers, your family, 
And I just want to encourage you, don't forget that their perspective matters. And don't forget that if they're not as politically engaged as you are, they're more likely to entertain arguments that will affect their lives directly, not these sort of um, ideological arguments about the Constitution and the role of government. So just think about that as you deal with people. Don't forget that people like to feel important. Don't forget to focus on other people's points of view and try to understand them. Basically, at its core, what I'm trying to say is don't forget people. Hey, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope it challenged you to change the way you think about politics. If you want to know more about my point of view, you can follow me on Twitter at BeGreenAZ. Um, you can also follow Outset Magazine, which is an awesome publication. We have content from uh, young conservatives and libertarians. Um, I happen to know... Christie supporters, Rubio supporters, Paul supporters, who are all part of the Outset team, and there are probably more that I don't know. Follow us at, at Outset Magazine or at OutsetMagazine.com, and make sure to follow the editor-in-chief, Stephen Perkins, at Stephen with a PH underscore Perkins. You can subscribe to this show in iTunes, where I hope you'll rate it with five stars. There are other Outset podcasts for you to listen to as well. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and have an awesome week.